A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. Now, coming up this week, how researchers have made the underwater equivalent of a post-it note, and you'll have to find out why in just a second. Also, can you listen to two things at once? Because scientists have pinpointed a gene that lets some people do just that, and if you can, perhaps you've got that gene. And when it comes to exercise, why putting your feet up might actually, it turns out, be quite good for you. Plus, how deep can you go? Well, it, uh, we'll be taking a look this week at the science of free diving, where people descend to extreme depths on just one breath of air. There's an Austrian guy called uh, Herbert Nietzsche, and he's just gone down to 211 metres on a, a weighted sled. And also this week we'll be looking at how the human body can handle some other extremes, including finding out how we cope with altitude at the top of Mount Everest, how fighter pilots are trained to cope with those G-forces inflicted on them by high-powered jets, and how life survives in the deep freeze at the polar ice caps. And also there's this week's question of the week, where we're going to be taking a look at this rather intriguing conundrum. What is the physics behind the way sycamore seeds float like helicopters, and why? Sounds intriguing. And uh, if you want to uh, take part in this week's kitchen science, then grab a glass of water, a needle and a piece of toilet paper. You're going to need them because we'll be joining Dave and Ben, who are doing an interesting experiment with them. And that's coming up in two ticks time. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider on the web at UKFast.net. Now, when I first said scientists have managed to make the underwater equivalent of a post-it note, you think that sounds a bit flippant. But actually, there's a good reason for it, because it's the perfect adhesive. What, what Phil Messersmith and his colleagues at the University of Northwestern in the US have done is to produce an adhesive that works very well both in and out of the water. And the way they've done it is to take two of nature's powerful adhesives, the gecko's foot and the, the stuff that muscles use to glue themselves onto things. They've put the two things together and produced this material. Now, why do geckos cling to surfaces so well? Well, if you zoom in with a very powerful microscope on their feet, you find that they've got tiny nano hairs called seti, at the end of which are these tiny spatulae, and these form an electrical attraction between the foot of the gecko and <coughs> the wall or even the, the ceiling, because they can run across vertical uh, off surfaces uh, upside down. And this electrical attraction locks them onto the surface. So what the guys have done is to copy that by making silicon nanopillars, these tiny rods which are on par with the size of the gecko foot, and then they've borrowed the glue from the muscle and smeared it onto this particular array of rods, and they've produced this material, and it works very well in the water, out of the water, and it can be stuck down and unpeeled thousands of times. And they think this is useful because you'll be able to make much better wound dressings, for example, that's just one example, so that your wound uh, can be covered up with something that sticks very well to skin and can be peeled off and put back down again and, and won't come off in the swimming pool. But other, other bonuses, robotics as well, robots that can go both uh, in the water and out of the Kind of amphibious robots, fantastic. Well, actually, I have to say, being a very keen diver, very excited about today's show, I'm quite keen on the idea of underwater post-it notes, being able to write each other notes. Well, divers have got no excuse for forgetting things in future. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Chris, do you, do you find it hard to listen to two things at once? Do you, are you watching the television while your wife's trying to talk to you and you just, you just can't listen to two things at once, or are you good at multitasking? No, I'm like really bad. I'm very distractible, and I have to put myself in a very, very quiet environment to get any work done. Okay. Well, if you can are, you? can you? Um, well, I think I'm pretty good. At, uh, you know, it's women, isn't it? It's supposed to be able to multi multitask. Uh, 
But um, if that's the sort of thing that happens to you, then you might be able to blame it on your genes. Because according to some new research that has just come out from a team of scientists from the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communication Disorders um, in Maryland in the US, um, that's a team led by Robert Morrill and his colleagues who've carried out a study of 194 pairs of identical and non-identical twins to investigate whether the ability or the lack of an ability to listen to more than one thing at once can actually be inherited. Because, of course, twin studies are one of those kind of classic ways of looking at how much genes are involved with what we do because you've got two perfect sets of experiments. Two people are exactly the same, same genes, and two people who are actually related, but only by about 50% generally. Those are the non-identical twins. They're only usually about share those number of genes. So what they did was they did a whole bunch of tests on these pairs of identical and non-identical twins and put the headphones on, a bit like the ones we're, we're listening to right now, and played different um, sounds into each ear and see how well each pair set of twins were able to distinguish the different sounds and say one of them while they were actually listening to another sound in the other ear. So, for example, ma and ka were played in each ear and they were asked to distinguish between the two of them. And so the teams compared, the team of scientists compared the scores between the identical and non-identical twins and um, basically discovered that the ability to listen to more than one thing is definitely her- heritable by about the same amount as type 1 diabetes, it seems. It's not just women are better at it than men. No, I think they probably controlled for that. I should think they probably controlled mm. for that. But uh, I, n- I see what you mean, though. <laughs> Chris. Well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but uh, so... Other than it being a really good excuse if you're getting nagged for not listening to your wife or listening to telly or whatever else it is that you might not be able to focus on, it's hoped that these studies will actually lead to a better understanding of other hearing disorders in which people who actually have normal hearing have trouble understanding the words that are being said to them. It's very interesting. That test is also, it's the, di- it's the dichotic or dioxic, yes, the dichotic listening test is, that's is right. the posh yes, name that's for, the posh it. Word for it. Yeah. And it was used at one time to try to determine whether people were right brain or left brain dominant because the, the theory was that hearing plunged into the, the right would go principally to the right side of your brain, left ear, left side. It could therefore be used as an index of which side of your brain was dominant because the side that was getting the sound would, and paying more attention to it uh, would be the one that was your dominant side of your brain. So if you play two different sounds and say, which, which word did you notice? The one played into the side going to the dominant hemisphere would be the one that actually you, you could recall. Case? Yes and no. I don't think it was a very uh, very sensitive way of doing it. But I think it, I think that's partly because the hearing pathways are crossed over. Some of the information is shared with both sides of your brain anyway. So that's probably why they, they actually had a bit of a problem because there's so much overlap. It's not that clear cut. But yeah. you mentioned diabetes. This I is did, very yeah. interesting. There's a paper in, in the journal Nature this week. Um, researcher Hal, Con, Hal Connison, who's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he was explaining to me earlier this week how he has uncovered a gene which is for type 1 diabetes. This is uh, juvenile diabetes, the type that comes on in young teenagers... Um, people about 12 years old and this is caused by the immune system attacking the the insulin producing cells in the pancreas of these children so the way he did this was they took a thousand children with type 1 diabetes they took 1200 parents of children with type 1 diabetes and then they took a thousand normal children and they used what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms snips to screen the entire genome the entire dna of all of these people to look for genetic hotspots that kept cropping up in the people with diabetes and they found this new gene and it's called kiaa0350 catchy name but, yeah great <laughs> but a very exciting prospect because 40 percent of the people with diabetes actually carry the gene and they've tracked down that it's expressed in the immune system and that fits with the fact the immune system kills off these pancreatic cells in the disease so now they've got a gene it means you can start asking, well, how does that actually work? What difference does it make to the disease? Can we use it to to test for people who might be at risk of diabetes in future? 
Sounds good, sounds good. And I've got a bit of slightly sad news which indicates that some of the species that live around our shores here in the UK aren't actually coping too well with climate change. And the, one of the reasons I... I That's me. <laughs> my, my house is... My garden's been flooded this week. Uh, it's crazy, isn't I'm, it? I'm, I'm developing seasonal affective disorder because the weather's so terrible. We just don't know what's going on. It's uh, <laughs> I mean, Anyway, all, sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. I quite understand. And we, we are all, all moaning the fact that it's raining quite so much. But this story is linked to, to increasing sea temperatures. And it's um, it concerns the birds, the seabirds that live around the islands of northern Scotland. And the reason I mention it is because that's where I'm off tomorrow um, for a bit of research for some of my own things. And I'm actually um, going to be going to Orkney, which is one of the islands where the populations, the nesting populations, of seabirds like puffins and kittiwakes, we think, um, as the RSPB have announced this week, are doing really very badly indeed. Why? Why are they doing so badly? Right. Well, there's various theories, but lots of it points m- towards climate change and the changing sea temperatures. And what we think is happening is that with the changing temperatures in the sea in, uh, in the North Sea, plankton communities, those tiny little plant creatures that live microscopically in the water column, are changing. Their population structures are changing because they're responding to increases, um, very slight increases in temperature. And in the seasonality of the temperature. It's getting warmer earlier. We think that's one of the key things. And one of the key foods that the birds feed on are sand eels, which in turn feed on these plankton. And so we think there may be this kind of cascade coming through. the Everything's e- going out of kilter. Exactly. And it might also be that... Um, so we think it's basically a lack of food for the birds and they're not being able to feed their young properly enough. And so they're just not successfully breeding. It's happened last year and it actually happened really badly in 2004. And we don't quite know the full extent this year's collapse, if you like, in the breeding of things like puffins until we get to the end of the summer. But it, this could be even worse. So it's really it's really bad news for these wonderful creatures that live live on our shorelines. And one of the things that we kind of hoped maybe would step in and take the place of the sand eels are the pipefish, which are a, a relative of seahorses. If you take a seahorse and stretch it out straight, it becomes, well, that's what pipefish look like. And actually their populations are doing very, are very RSPCA well. The RSPCA aware of this? <laughs> I'm just trying to paint a picture, Chris, just trying to paint okay. a picture. But then these things are doing very well. We don't quite know why that is, but maybe we thought, well, it's a good thing. Perhaps the, the uh, puffins and so on can feed so on So you were saying with the penguins last week, you were yeah, saying penguins exactly. are eating krill. Will they switch diet? Will they switch? The problem is that pipefish probably aren't that good to eat. They've got these bony outer cover um, skeletons, which mean they're very difficult to eat. And you find these poor puffins trying to force them down the throats of their chicks. It sounds like the food I got working. at Addenbrooke's Hospital the other day oh. when I have fish and chips. Not good at all. But anyway, so the pipefish really aren't being much help for the birds. So really, we just don't know what's going to happen. And it could be really bad news indeed. So, But I might have a look and see what I can find when I'm up there next week and come well, back Well, make sure you take some pictures. And yeah, we can, well, definitely. We can put them on the yeah. web, nakedscientist.com. Uh, just to finish up with, this is, I, I know you're so, you're so fit and, and active that this probably wouldn't apply to you anyway, Helen. But uh, when you go and take exercise, people often think that the more you do, the better more exercise, the fitter you are, more calories you burn, more weight you lose, all that kind of stuff. And it's just not true, it turns out, because Japanese researchers decided to subject this dogma to a test. They got six healthy young men and they gave them, or randomised them, to in a random sequence go on an exercise bike for 60 minutes or 30 minutes, then have a 20 minute with your feet up and then another 30 minutes or 60 minutes in an armchair. Now that would be me for 60 minutes <laughs> Chris, in an armchair. please, surely you but, must but, like But um, what, what they did was to take blood samples from them throughout this cycle pardon the pun, and what this showed was that they burned more fat, they had more free fatty acids and more glycerol in their bloodstream when they took the 
interrupted exercise regime than when they did the full-on 60 minutes of intense activity. I so thought you were going to say sitting in a chair, which would no, be great news. No, but... only burn about 60 calories an hour sitting <laughs> oh, in the well, chair. Oh, never mind. If you talk and listen to this programme, of course, it goes up a bit okay, as the cerebral excellent, excellent. Uh, involvement. But, yeah. So why do we so, think that is? Why, why is it best to kind of interrupt your exercise? Uh, it might be because it, you prime the body into a fat-burning state. And then when you have a bit of a rest, it's still primed for more fat-burning. So when you resume the exercise, it then mobilises even more resources because you're now, you've now had the opportunity to prepare even more for more exercise. And it's more physiological. You know, and our ancestors wouldn't have done a burst of exercise catching something and then done absolutely nothing. They probably would have done fits and starts of exercise. So it's not surprising that our body's systems would be optimised to burn energy in that way. Sounds good, sounds good. Well, remember, this week on The Naked Scientist, we are talking about survival and extreme conditions and perhaps running on a treadmill for 60 minutes. Sounds quite extreme to me. But uh, anyway, if you have any questions at all about what it's like to go very deep underwater or very high up in the altitude, up in the mountains, or be subjected to great G-forces in jet engines, um, if you've got any questions at all along those lines, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. It's the Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. Just to say hello to Carol, who's Carol uh, writing from the UK. She says, I listen to the Naked Scientist and, and uh, your other podcasts and I greatly enjoy them. My work situation has changed recently. Get this, Helen. Uh, I'm able to listen to several months worth of podcasts at work. Fantastic. Hey, fantastic. Uh, Great. The sound of your voices has been a constant companion. But what I want to know is, um, does Chris have any free time? What does he do on Earth? What on Earth does he do besides make all these podcasts? Well, I actually have just been reading Harry Potter today and I think he might have a time turner, if you remember that bit. It's the new one, the new book. Yeah. Did you queue up? Till... I did actually. I was up until two thirty, waiting in the queue on Friday night. <laughs> Ridiculous! But no, I think you've got a time turner. That's how you get all those hours in the day. I've got an email here from Alexander in Germany, and he says, "Why is it that when I'm using my electric toothbrush and I'm waiting, I'm watching TV at the same time, uh, that the picture goes all shaky?" This is a brilliant question, and thank you for that, Alexander. The reason for this is that when you have an electric motor, which your electric toothbrush does inevitably have, then the way in which the current is transmitted from the power supply, the battery, onto the coils, the windings in the motor, the motor makes a magnetic field by supplying electricity to these windings, and that's what makes the motor turn. You have this commutator and brushes, and the brushes are usually carbon, and as the thing turns, it makes intermittent contacts with the coils, and where you get an intermittent contact, you get intermittent current, and that makes a spark. So when you've got sparks and you've got electricity in an interrupted fashion going backwards and forwards, because electricity and electrical currents make magnetic fields, what you're effectively doing is generating radio waves with your electric toothbrush. So he's generating the full spectrum of radio and television waves with his electric toothbrush. The, the sort of zone of influence of an electric toothbrush will not be very big. It will be narrowed down to a fairly small area, but anything that's sensitive to fields like that or those kind of radio waves in the near area will will be affected and that's why you see this in your TV and your radio. If if you sort of switch your desk lamp on and off next to your radio when you're listening to the naked scientists, then you'll hear this little sort of ch as the light turns on and that's the current surging through the wire and producing some electrical I've fields. I thought maybe it was a slightly simpler answer that he was literally just shaking his head <laughs> and that's why it was moving because his uh, eye his, Well his I think he means there's wiggly lines on the screen oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> right now I think it's time that we headed off for kitchen science. So uh, here's Ben and Dave with this week's kitchen science. Hi Ben. Hello, welcome to kitchen science. Uh, Dave has dragged me along to Parkside Community College today in Cambridge and he told me to bring some sewing needles so I guess we're making some clothes today. Dave, is that right? Not quite, I'm afraid, Ben. Um, What you need for this experiment is a needle, as you said, a bowl of water, some toilet paper and some washing up liquid. And of course, we need a volunteer. So hello, Lucy. Tell us about yourself. 
Hi, my name's Lucy and I'm, I go to Partside and I'm going to be taking part in an experiment. Do you enjoy doing science experiments at school? Uh, yeah, I do like doing them at school, but it's quite like disorganised. Sometimes people set fire to each other and stuff, so you have to be careful. Fantastic. That sounds like our kind of experiment, Dave. So come on, Dave, what do we need to do? Well, this is really simple. All you've got to do first, Lucy, if you'd like to take the toilet paper and could you cut yourself a piece about one and a half times as long as a needle and about a needle's length wide? Okay. Now, if you've got the sort of two-ply toilet paper with the two layers in it, can you just take off one layer of it? So you're just left with one very thin layer of tissue? That's exactly right. That's brilliant. You can throw away the other half. OK, Lucy, so you've got a piece of very thin toilet tissue, probably about two inches by one inch. What's the next stage, Dave? Well, now you want to put the needle on top of the tissue paper. Lucy's very carefully laying it on top of it. Do be careful with needles. Of course, they're sharp. They're supposed to be. I still don't see where this is going, though. Now, what I want Lucy to do in a minute, and for you to do at home, is to very gently lower the tissue paper with the needle onto it, onto the water, and just leave it there, let it settle gently, and wait for a couple of minutes and see what happens. I'm expecting just to get a bit of soggy tissue paper. What do you think is going to happen, Lucy? Well, it might float because the tissue paper is so thin that it won't be very heavy, so it might just float on top of the water. Okay. So what you need to do at home is get a small piece of tissue paper about one inch by two inches or so, one ply tissue, very thin, and carefully lay a needle on it and then lay the piece of tissue paper flat onto the surface of the water. Careful not to touch the needle, don't disturb the water too much and just lay that on the top. Let us know what you think will happen and we'll come back later in the show. Thanks, Ben. So if you want to try that out at home, you have to go get yourself a bowl or even a large glass would do. Fill it up with water, then take a needle, lay it on a small piece of single ply tissue or toilet paper and carefully lay that on the surface of the water. And if you want to let us know what happens, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Yeah, it is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. This week we're going to be discussing science and survival in the extremes. David Thomas will be joining us shortly. He's from the University of Wales at Bangor and he'll be talking about life in the extremes at the poles. Very, very low temperatures down there, but what flourishes and how do humans survive down there? We'll also be venturing right to the top of Everest, well, nearly Everest Base Camp, to find out how scientists are doing experiments on how the body, a human body, can adapt to survive at those altitudes with such low oxygen levels. And we'll be catching up with Major Todd Dart from the US Air Force to find out what happens when you go, jump on board a jet and you get taken to incredibly high speeds very, very quickly. You have big G-forces. How does the body cope with that and can you train people to accommodate it? Right, Nigel's listening in Northampton, Helen. He says, can you tell me, why are we advised to preheat our oven before we cook food? Surely it would be more efficient to use the preheating to warm the food first. I guess it's a good point, actually, and it's um, <clears throat> something I've been considering. I just had a new kitchen fitted. Oh, well, we did it ourselves, and our and cooker seems to take not that long to heat up. But the the main reason it has to be is essentially that the food you're cooking the recipes you're cooking or the whatever pre-packaged food you might be heating up in your oven comes with a recommended amount of time at a very certain temperature that it needs in order to cook it properly for you to eat it safely and um, essentially you just need to know that the temperature the, the oven has reached that temperature if it hasn't quite got there yet you haven't necessarily got the right length of time um, to to heat your food for the you know to make it to cook it in the way it needs to be cooked. So that's really it. It's a bit of a boring answer, I'm afraid. But, uh, but that's what, what's going on. Maybe you could use that heat to heat something else up, like some water or something, I don't know. But, uh, but that's basically it. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. A time now to catch up with the guys across the Atlantic, Bob and Chelsea, for this week's science update. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to talk about the lengths to which some plants and animals will go to help their kin survive. I'm going to talk about some family-oriented plants called sea rockets. But first, 
Chelsea tells us about a surprising ability of a common garden pest. Did you ever secretly mix two chemicals in chemistry class to get an explosion of noxious fumes? Well, biologist Glenn Powell of Imperial College London discovered that cabbage aphids do just that inside their bodies. One of the chemicals comes from the cabbage plant itself. The aphids eat it and store it in their blood. The aphids produce the other chemical themselves and store it in their muscles. If a predator ladybug takes a bite out of one of the aphids, the two chemicals meet and blast the ladybug with poison. The type of damage that needs to be done、uh, in order to mix the blood with the muscle tissue to actually produce this reaction is fairly extreme. So probably the aphid that sets off the defense dies in the process. But Powell says it dies a hero's death, protecting its colony. Thanks, Chelsea. Some plants not only recognize their family members; they even treat them more generously than they treat strangers. Plant ecologist Susan Dudley and Amanda File of McMaster University in Canada discovered this among plants called sea rockets. Normally, when unrelated sea rockets are potted together, they grow longer roots than they would on their own to better compete for limited water and nutrients. But Dudley says things were different when they potted the plants with their siblings. The siblings basically didn't respond to sharing the pot, so they didn't make this competitive response while the strangers did. Since some other plants might share this behavior, Dudley says gardeners may get better results by planting crops near family. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next time with more amazing science from the country of family values. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, naked scientists. Fantastic! And remember, if you want to check out more from the Science Update team, you can have a look at their website, www.scienceupdate.com. And now on the naked scientists to the science of free diving. This is diving as deep as you can, but without any air supply. And here to tell us a little bit more about it is from the British Free Diving Association, Mark Harris. Hello, Mark. Hi, Chris. So, just in a nutshell, what is the point of free diving? Um, it's really to、uh, to dive down as as deeply as you can on one one breath of air. Um, there are several disciplines in free diving, but、uh, basically the one that most people are, are familiar with is, is diving deep、um, by, by holding a breath. You don't have any sort of weights or anything to help you get as deep as you need to go. You do actually, yes,、um, because you need to wear a, a wetsuit. You need to offset that with a little bit of weight, but it tends to be a bit less than scuba divers wear. So it's typically around two or three kilos or so. So would you swim down, or would you just rely on the weight of the, of the water and the weight you're carrying to drag you down? Uh, you can do either because there are different disciplines in in free diving. You can、um, you can either fin down with a you know a pair of fins, or you can、uh, go onto what's called a sled, which is, would have weights on it, very heavy weights, and that would pull you down. And if you do that variety of free diving, which is called no limits, that will actually take you、um, a lot deeper because you don't need to use any as、uh, or as much oxygen to get down there. How deep do people who do this tend to go, Mark? Well, up until recently, I think the deepest depth was、um, about 150, 160. I think a lot of people is that meters?、Uh, meters, that's right. Yes, and I think a lot of people are familiar with Tanya Streeter. She's quite a well-known free diver who was hitting those sort of depths.、Uh, but more recently,、uh, there's an Aust- Austrian guy called、uh, Herbert Nisch, and he's just gone down to 211 meters on a, a weighted sled. Crikey,、uh, this is this is hundreds of feet. I mean, how are people doing that?、Um, well. The combination of things, really, partly people's physiology or freedivers' physiology、um, has has adapted. People have found new techniques and、uh, and that that sort of thing, and also、um, the technology that people are using now. For instance, Herbert Herbert Nisch uses a, a special little bottle that he breathes into part of the way down to help him with his equalisation.、Um, he doesn't actually use any scuba tanks or anything like that. This is the air from his lungs, but he just t- kind of reuses it in a 
in a plastic bottle, really. So how do you prepare yourself? If you're going to do one of these dives, how do you get ready to do it? What you really need to do is two or three successive breath holds to condition your body. So what a lot lot of us do is we tend to have a a rope in the ocean or a lake, depending where we're doing it, and um, we just pull ourselves down to about 10, 15 or 20 metres or so and just do a breath hold there for a couple of minutes and then pull ourselves back up again. And if you do that, you know, over a successive period of time, it helps to condition your body ready for doing the uh, the much deeper dive later. And then what do you do? Because whenever I dive underwater, do a few lengths of the pool or something, you find yourself having this irresistible urge to want to breathe, presumably because something's building up in your body. So do you sort of hyperventilate before you do it to get rid of waste gases like carbon dioxide? Absolutely not, no. Certainly not trained free divers. I think people that don't know very much about it have tried that and certain people that go spearing fish sometimes do that. But it's just about the worst thing you can do. When you hyperventilate, you're blowing off carbon dioxide. And when you do this, it causes vasoconstriction of the veins and arteries in the um, brain. So it's effectively sort of shutting off blood supply to, to the brain. And it also means that when you've blown off that carbon dioxide, you've tricked your body into thinking that you don't need to breathe. So you get into uh, an area where you've used up oxygen in your bloodstream. So you get this kind of double whammy effect and it results in something called shallow water blackout. So it's a, it's a very dangerous thing, really. And it's one of the main things that we try and suggest to people to avoid. So slap on wrist to me for even suggesting that I might think of doing that. So Well, not really. I mean, I think, I think it's good that you did, actually, um, you know, to alert people to, to that, that sort of thing. So um, when you're but, actually diving, Mark, what's actually happening to your body as, as you descend to hundreds of feet underwater as these professionals are? Well, I guess the main thing that you're aware of is, is the fact that all your air spaces are, are rapidly decreasing because the pressure is building up. Uh, the, vo- the volume of, of air in your sinuses, your lungs and your inner ear, that's all decreasing and you, you, know, you, you, you feel that as you're going down. Once you um, hit, hit round about 15, 20 metres or so, you can stop thinning because you just start sinking. At the same time, you have to equalise your, your ear spaces and then once you get down to past about 40 metres, you then start having issues with your lungs because your lungs are, are squashed right down. Uh, they're really compressed to quite a small, a small area. Sounds scary. So how do you know when you've reached your limit and it's time to start ascending? Because that must be critical to survival, isn't it? It is, but for everyone it, it happens to be a different, a different thing. I mean, for some people, like myself in fact, it tends to be a strength of the legs. So I, I, I know at a certain depth that I'm going to have problems thinning against the negative buoyancy to get me back to the surface. But for other people, it will be just not being able to compensate the ears against the pressure that can be one thing. And for other people, it's just a mental thing. You know, um, they just start sort of not panicking, but just getting a little bit uncomfortable and not feeling happy with the situation. So it can be, a, you know, any one of those things, really. And just to finish off, Mark, how long can you hold your breath for these days? Well, I was in the swim pool last night uh, doing some training. I did a six minute, 18 second hold, but I've done better than that. Good grief. So do you practice in the bath? Do you lay in the bath underwater, kind of uh, holding your nose? Um, this is another one of those slack wrist moments. Um, with freediving, whatever you do, whether it's holding your breath or actually swimming underwater, you never, ever do it alone. So doing it in the bath, first of all, it would be very uncomfortable. But second of all, I'd have to have someone with me to monitor me. But as um, I say, baths are always fun if there's more than one person in there at once. Well, well that's true, yes. <laughs> um, there, there is that to think about, and there's the rubber ducks to play with, but... Um, you could do it in the bath. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit tricky. For, for me personally, for, for, if I'm training at home, I tend to do it out of the water and just do dry breath holds. 
Okay, well, Mark Harris from the British Free Diving Association, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on that. Okay, thank you, Chris. Well, that's pretty weird, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely amazing to think people can do that. Absolutely. I'm really quite envious. Um, I'm quite... You do quite uh, a lot of diving. I I do a lot of scuba diving, and I'm actually kind of thinking about training to do some free diving too, actually. I think there's something about being free in the water and not having this tank on your back, which it is amazing. Scuba diving is a fantastic experience, but but being free and self-sufficient. And also knowing you can push your body and you can... I don't Obviously, I don't want to plummet down to 200 metres. I'm not into that kind of extreme stuff, but just hanging around at maybe 20 metres under my own steam and being happy under there water would be fantastic a really well, amazing experience when i was uh, in australia and in the cook islands and i went and did a bit of scuba diving between dives i was doing a lot of just free diving with snorkel and stuff and in fact as soon as you swim down to about 10 meters underwater a the pressure is incredible and it, it begins to really quite hurt and also you, you, you expend quite a lot of energy getting down there and you're knackered and yeah. how these people spend well, so long underwater i don't know six, you're saying six minutes i mean that's yeah. amazing i mean people can hold their breath for, if you train yourself i think that's it it's, the, it's being able to teach your body to cope with those kind of lack of <laughs> the lack of oxygen and the pressure. The pressure you can get rid of through your ears by blowing your nose, blowing into your nose, um, <clears throat> clearing your sinuses. But um, I think it's all about training your body, and it's amazing what the human body can do. I think if you learn how to do things like just calm down, calm your body. You know, you, as long as you don't panic, I think that's one thing as well. Sounds I mean, like I good to, advice for this program. I used to, I used to panic. You know, you, <laughs> you, I used to not want to jump off a high diving board because I thought that you would go down so far you wouldn't have time to come up. You know, from being underwater. I but, just didn't like the sensation of now, falling off a high diving board because it's that sensation of just weightless acceleration is well, awful. You find well. you, you wiggle your legs involuntarily. Do you not do that? It's just sort of pit, plummeting down. You go, uh, oh, and then no. it hurts I, when I you hit the water. I only dive gracefully into the water. Course, I, I never dared to go head first. <laughs> I tried it once off an intermediate level board and gave myself such a sort of headache afterwards. <laughs> it's I said, true, you have to hold your head. Yeah. Right, let's welcome to the studio David Thomas, who is from the University of Wales at Bangor. Hi, David. Thank you for coming mm-hmm. along. Now, you, you've got a new book out. It's, um, it's Surviving in Antarctica. And I suppose as someone who's been to both the poles for his research, you have survived and come back. But it's it's a horrible place, isn't it? I mean, how cold is it at the poles? Well, it must be said that we go mostly in the summer, so actually quite often we're working on the ice in T-shirts because if the sun's at a high angle, it's just like being Switzerland and, uh, and you know, and the, the warmed by the sun. But at the South Pole, the coldest temperature has been minus 80 degrees centigrade, so about the same temperature as liquid nitrogen, really. So That's it's really very cold quite indeed. cold. Yeah. It's, it's pretty chilly. How does life survive there, or is it a barren wilderness with nothing? No, there's plenty of bacteria that are living in this uh, uppermost um, snow in the, the South Pole. And most of these organisms, they kind of go down into a kind of diapause or a hibernation, or they just go into resting stages until conditions get better. So myself, I study microscopic algae that got caught up into ice, into frozen seawater. And, and when temperatures get really very cold, they just switch down their metabolism to a basal rate and then wait for the, te- uh, the conditions to get better. And that's a general principle. Same for polar bears, really, as well. So if you look in the ice, it's not the sterile thing that we think it is. There's, there's got a lot of life hidden in there. There's a lot of viruses, there's a lot of bacteria. No, it's, it's, it's teeming with life. Even very ancient ice that is, is, is hundreds of thousands of years old has bacteria that, are, that have been brought back to life when this ice has been retrieved from these deep ice cores that people are taking in Greenland and in the, in the Antarctic. It's intriguing to me that we put into our deep freeze at home food to make sure that it won't go off. It suppresses the activity of life, which degrades food. That's at about minus 20. 
you're playing around in those temperatures and you've got things that you're saying are thriving. So yeah. how, how do they survive and flourish in those temperatures? So we, we've actually got uh, bacteria that are moving around at minus 20. So this is the same temperature as your, as your freezer in the sea ice. And one of the things that they do is they produce a lot of slime and they produce a lot of mucus that they kind of protect their cells within and kind of sit in this gel-like body that buffers them against a lot of the temperature and also saline stresses that they may come into contact with. Is it true that things like Unilever, big companies like them, have borrowed from biology and solved the problem of how to make smooth ice cream by nicking the chemistry that some of these microbes have invented for themselves? There's a whole new uh, industry of bioprospecting in the, in the poles and people are looking for, for enzymes that work at particularly cold temperatures, um, of substances that make, as you say, ice cream smooth at cold temperatures. There's a whole group of industries that are out there that are really looking to the poles for solving many of these kind of problems. One of the things you said was, it, on a hot day, it can be like you're on the ski slopes in Switzerland and you have to be careful not to get burned because there's lots of UV and things. So two questions come out of that. One is how do these organisms not actually get zapped by the UV? And B, if there's a massive hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica now, is that compromising these organisms? A lot of the organisms that live down there have are able to react very quickly to changing light conditions and they're able to produce a whole string of pigments and also um, amino acid, um, special amino acids that they kind of uh, are able to basically produce their own sunscreens, if you like. Um, and in turn, these microalgae and bacteria that produce these substances are eaten by things like the crustaceans, krill, as I gather you heard about last week. Um, and they then take on this sunscreen by, eat, by their diet, basically. Oh, so one borrows from the other. Exactly. That's neat. So can we nick that and use this to make better sun creams for us? I don't think we need to. Especially if this ozone hole gets any bigger. I don't think we need to. But one of the things, I mean, when the ozone hole was first identified, I mean, a lot of biologists got a lot of research money out of this because everybody thought, well, this was going to be catastrophic to biology in polar regions. But in fact, what I think the last 10 to 15 years of research has shown that it probably isn't as catastrophic as we first thought, that the biology is really able to cope um, pretty remarkably, actually. So that's the hole in the ozone there. But what about the other big problem, which is said to be affecting Antarctica? which is global warming yeah. and melting. There, there's conflicting stories because some people are saying, oh, some bits of Antarctica are getting warmer, some bits are getting colder. What's the, the real story and how does this all fit together? I think what's interesting here is that, that we do have regions of the Antarctic, the Antarctic Peninsula, that is, is probably the area of the globe or the world that is heating up the most or at the fastest rate. But in general, it's thought that the Antarctic isn't really suffering as such from global climate change. Where the things are really happening is up in the Arctic, where we know that in 2050, so within our lifetimes, hopefully, um, there will be no sea ice, for instance, in the summer. There will be always sea ice in, in the winter, but there will be no sea ice in the summer in the 2050s. And what, what's melting it? Just, just increasing temperatures. The temperatures are, are, are increasing dramatically over the past 30 years. Is that the sea temperature, so it's melting from beneath, or is that the air temperature, it's melting from above? It's both, actually. So, so both. So, I mean, so... And, and you know, the thought of a, a, an ice-free Arctic, well, it's great for the shipping companies that are going to be able to use the Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passages, but for things like the polar bears that are getting so much... Um, um, press at the moment but also for the whole ecosystem because there's a whole ecosystem that's based on having a frozen ocean for a whole year up in the arctic well of course we don't know what the consequences are going to be don't polar bears do something clever when they walk across ice because they can in some way intuitively test whether it'll take them they can they can they kind of splay their legs out and they kind of crawl um on um you know so they're spreading the load of their body but it doesn't really matter if they fall through to be quite honest polar bears are tremendous swimmers anyway 
Now, you said that Antarctica isn't suffering that much, but what about the fact that that Aishi Larsen B and the other ones which have we've seen previously to now, they, they've actually been of the order of thousands of square, square kilometres of ice, haven't they? So is that not significant then? Yeah, it's certainly significant, but these kind of ice shelf breakups have been happening throughout geological time, and so they're part of a natural process. An ice shelf come, comes to an end and breaks off. It is true, though, Larsen B is on the Antarctic Peninsula, and it is very likely that um, that's associated with the warming of the peninsula area. Do you think then that it's too late from this global warming point of view. Are we going to see unequivocal losses that we can't remedy, uh, both in terms of the ecosystems and those environments? Or do you think if we do start acting now, we can turn things around? No, I don't think we can start turning things around. And, and cyclical changes like this have been well known in geological time. I mean, in the past, there was tropical plants growing up in the Arctic region. So this is nothing new. Um, what we've done, I think, through in the last couple of hundred years is we just increased the rate of change or something that was happening quite naturally. And um, my guess is we can't turn things around. We're not going to stop this pack ice going in the Arctic. Um, but it must be said that many of these changes, you know, we've seen big cycles in climate change in the past. So, I suppose it's, it's good news, as my sort of final point, for fishermen, because up in the northern hemisphere, where they've been restricted by quotas and declining fish stocks, some of them have taken to catching icebergs instead, haven't they? I did <laughs> read one wonderful story where there's quite a big market for the water locked up in icebergs now. There has there's been lots of ideas throughout time of, you know, taking icebergs and dragging them to, to Arabian countries as well as a source of fresh water, and this is an, an idea that doesn't seem to ever go away. <laughs> but there must be quite a lot of, of water locked up in an iceberg. There must be millions of tons, isn't there's, there? There's massive amounts of water, I mean, and especially when you kind of add up the amount of water that's in an ice shelf or on an ice cap. It's just staggering amounts. I mean. Thank you, David. That's David Thomas. He's from the University of Wales at Bangor. And he's written a book which has come out. It's called Surviving Antarctica. He's got another book out in hardback, which is called Frozen Oceans. And it's been published by the Natural History Museum. I think Frozen Oceans is, and I'm not being sycophantic just because he's here in the studio, this is one of the best books I've actually probably ever read, and I've read a few, about the ecosystems down in both Antarctica and also up in the Arctic. And it gives a really amazing and vivid account both of ice science and also the life science that's associated with the ice science and we're going to put links about that on our website because it's a really wonderful book frozen oceans and uh, thank you very much david for coming and talking to us about it thank you that's right i think i'm gonna have a look at that book myself it looks fantastic laying the facts bare the naked scientists it is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Helen and we're talking this week about the science of extremes and how the human body can cope with them. We've heard about diving down to incredibly uncanny, unfeasible depths, something like hundreds of metres down. Now we're going to find out about going, well, thousands of metres up in the air. Major Todd Darts from the US Air Force. Hi, uh, Todd. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right. Now, um, it, it sounds pretty trivial. You just get an aeroplane and fly it. But what sorts of forces and G-forces will people who are flying very fast planes actually be experiencing? Well, it all depends. Uh, fighter aircraft, for example, pull up to a, upwards of nine Gs in the aircraft. That's what we call nine positive Gs, or the vector going from the head down to the feet. But in real terms, blood. what does that mean, Todd? In real terms, it means you have, uh, you have to be able to get that blood, keep that blood up to your brain so you don't uh, lose consciousness eventually, if you don't uh, have some sort of way of keeping the blood from pulling down. So we have a lot of mechanisms that we have to train the pilots to do, fighter pilots specifically, and uh, uh, also technology that we use to help keep that blood up to the brain. So are you saying that you would tell people not to make maneuvers that might subject them to these 9Gs? Because uh, no. I suppose to put that in, in perspective, 9Gs, if, that was subje if your head is feeling a force of 9Gs, the, the weight of your head is effectively nine times bigger than normal, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. And unfortunately, in the military environment, sometimes you have to pull 9Gs. So uh, you have to come up with ways to counter that. And the way we do that is we provide them training on like a human centrifuge, and there are two of the Air Force uses for that. And what we do is we'll put them on there and we train them how to use the equipment. We put them in G-suits, which only gives you about maybe a 1G increase or so in, in, in G-tolerance. And the main thing we do is we, we train them on how to perform what was called an anti-G straining maneuver. So when you say you wear a suit, this suit uh, puts pressure on the body, squeezing, say, on the legs, and this stops blood from pooling in the legs. Is that the sort of way it's done? Yes, exactly. It's an abdominal. In fact, if you're, I know you're a medical doctor, you're probably familiar with the old mass suit, and the, that was developed from, or uh, prevent shock, and that was developed from the uh, G suits used in the military. And what it does is it has a bladder there, uh, a, a typical G suit has a bladder, abdominal bladder, and bladders in the leg. Some have all, they cover the whole leg, some only have bladders that cover certain parts of the leg, and it squeezes the leg as soon as you hit about two Gs and helps, uh, helps get that blood up to your brain. So that's the blood going away from the brain, but what about if you do the maneuver the other way? Does this force the blood into your brain, and can that be dangerous? Uh, yes, it can. In fact, we can't tolerate very much of that. We can uh, only about negative 3 Gs, what's called negative G, and that's about as much as we can handle before we start getting what calls red out. You're getting so much blood up into the brain that it ends up engorging your eyes, you get some rupturing, and, and it can cause some uh, and it's headaches. And it's very uncomfortable, so pilots don't like to do those. And so Not surprisingly. Yeah. So how can you compensate for these effects? What can you say to people? What do people actually do to avoid feeling these effects? Well, to avoid the negative Gs, what pilots will do is they'll simply roll the aircraft and pull positive Gs. They don't, uh, and most aircraft are not designed to pull negative Gs because it's uncomfortable. And we are, uh, we are evolutionary adapted to handle 1G pretty well. So we have physiological and anatomical mechanisms that are designed to help get that blood up to the brain, check valves in the veins, and we also have uh, cardiovascular reflexes. And we, we rely on those as well to help give us that tolerance we need to get up there. And what we normally do is we'll, they help pull those positive Gs, and we'll get them in the G-suit, and we'll get them in the aircraft. We train them how to do a good straining maneuver, and they will start their strain and before they even get a chance to go uh, much higher uh, in Gs. And so they're starting their strain to get that blood up to their brain that they need so they can last a typical, they'll pull Gs maybe 10, 15 seconds. Do you find that there are some people who just can never be trained to go up that far and to experience this kind of extreme conditions? Or aren't some people better than others? Some are. It just, it, 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 there's a lot of individual variation, and most people start to uh, lose consciousness if they were relaxed between 5 and 7 Gs. Uh, but normally, if the, the taller you are, the, the less able you are to handle the Gs, and that's because it depends a lot on the heart-to-brain distance. The greater the distance, the more, more uh, uh, distance you have to pump the blood up to the brain, and that's more strain, and it's, you have to maintain a higher blood pressure to do that. So People who tend to do a little bit better on average are those who tend to be short. So can you sort of, when you put people on your human centrifuge, can you tell who's going to be okay and who's going to have problems? We have a general idea. It's, it's not 100%, of course. Yeah, I've seen people who are very tall, thin marathon runners who, who are fighter pilots who do great, who do wonderful. And, uh, but so Tom Cruise w- really would be a good fighter pilot then because he he's nice be, and yeah. short like me. Yes, he might be a better fighter pilot because those uh, who are tend to be shorter tend to do better. So uh, what about women? Because obviously at the moment the military tends to select in favour of men. Is, is there an anatomical reason for that? Or is, is it just because historically it's always been blokes who've gone to war and the women haven't so much until more recently? Well, the U.S. Air Force, we have female fighter pilots as well. So we, and we found out many years ago, in fact, that there really is very little difference between men and women in terms of the G-tolerance. Women do just as well as men do on average. 
Okay, well, look, Todd, thank you very much for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Oh, you're welcome. Thank and you uh, telling us about how we can survive extreme Gs and human centrifuges. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Major Todd Dart, who is from the uh, US Air Force, talking about how we can put people in centrifuges and get them prepared for the kind of forces they're going to experience when they are up high in an aeroplane. Do you fancy doing that, Chris, going up and experiencing huge numbers of Gs and spinning around I'd in the air? Like to, I'd quite like to have a go on the vomit comet, actually. <laughs> oh, when you've experienced zero gravity? Yeah. yeah. And did you see, in the last year or so, people did the first operation on the vomit comet, where they had people flying down and they, they took off a sebaceous cyst from a guy's arm. I remember when Dr. Phil was here uh, oh, last what, year, he was, was telling us about it. Well, because we need to be able to show you can do microsurgery or surgical techniques in microgravity because if we're going to do long space missions in the future we need to know if someone needs something doing that we can do it and do it safely no one had ever tried doing an operation in effectively in space before and now we know that they can it was it was a bit dodgy though because you've got to you've got to do about 30 descents because the plane goes up to a very high altitude then comes back down again and they had to do it about 30 times to give the surgeons enough time to complete this operation and if you're feeling a bit queasy and you've got your arm half kind of cut open and you're thinking can we just land now <laughs> no because we haven't finished the operation oh it sounds dreadful i think i prefer to stay under the water definitely <laughs> <laughs> right now well now we're going to go from very high up in the air to uh in an airplane to very high up in the air just very high up in the air richard turner is a bbc journalist and he's been part of extreme everest hello richard Hi, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Why were you up Everest? Um, I heard about a project called Extreme Everest, which was organised by some uh, some very clever doctors at University College in London, uh, and they were looking for volunteers to uh, to walk up to Everest Base Camp and so that they could do a, a wide uh, scientific study on the effects of low oxygen or hypoxia uh, on the human body. What was it like, actually, at Everest Base Camp? Because we hear this trotted out, you know, it's Everest Base Camp, but what actually is Everest Base Camp and what's it like there? Uh, every space camp is, is very much like um, a, a very icy quarry. I mean, it's it's a very barren place, and there's there's, there's not much up there, um, apart from lots of tents and and and, and uh, climbers and doctors uh, in in this case. So, what sorts of conditions were you experiencing when you were there? Well, the conditions were were really about how we responded to the, the altitude, and and the, and therefore that that rarefied atmosphere that you get in altitude. Um, the the oxygen levels at, at, at that height are about a half of what they are at sea level. Um, in fact, you and we were studying ourselves and testing ourselves on on the on the walk or the trek up there, and um, you know you would watch your blood oxygen levels or your oxygen saturation in your blood fall and um, down to levels which would be quite critical if you were at sea level but by the time you get to you, by the time you've acclimatized you, you can cope with those levels and they, they were down to like sort of 60 you know 65 percent um, whereas normally at, at sea level you'd be on a 98 percent how high is Everest Base Camp above sea level? Everest Base Camp is 5,300 metres. Um, uh, it's, it's on the edge of what uh, people call the, the death zone up there. It sounds quite dramatic, but the, the, the issue is that um, above that height and up to the height of, of, of Everest, um, you are at the limits of human... Um, humans body, human body's ability to cope with those low oxygen conditions uh, and in fact the, the summit of Everest coincidentally is actually the, um, the exact limit of human ability it just so happens to be that and it, uh, there the oxygen is about a third of what it is uh, down here. How did you cope with walking around with oxygen levels that were so low when you were first there? Did you notice? Yes, you do. You, you notice uh, there are various things that you, you that you sort of start feeling. Um, first of all, you know the the, the physical fatigue. Um, you know, moving uh, any form of 
um, exercise or movement or, or is actually suddenly becomes very hard. Um, we have had time on the way up to acclimatise to those conditions, so your body does you, you can function. Um, but it, it's the little things that you know that, that, that any form of exercise and little things like your wounds don't heal very well, or your nails get very brittle, um, it, and you're very tired, and you don't sleep well, and that's the other thing. Um, it, when you sleep, and normally your your oxygen. Uh, levels fall because you'd actually your body is saying i don't need as much oxygen you know i'm at rest um if that happens at altitude where there is even less oxygen uh, you actually don't you know your body's not getting very much oxygen so you don't sleep very well at all and what did the medical doctors find with the blood samples and things they took from you have they actually published the findings yet or are they still ongoing with the with the workup on it now that data is still being analysed, and uh, it's going to be some time before we get the full results. But um, you know, they're they're interested in finding um, or applying the the results of this uh, to intensive care medicine and in, in other conditions where oxygen is an issue. So, for instance, um, yeah, basically what happened was they they would go into as as intensive care doctors as they were uh, at UCL. They would they would see two patients come in with similar traumas into intensive care, and one would live and one would die. And to to today you know people haven't really been able to work out why uh, being mountaineers uh, for a hobby as it were and many of them realized that the conditions or the symptoms that the that the patients were experiencing were very similar to mountaineers at, at high, high altitude you know the low oxygen um, swelling on the brain and the lungs um, and they realized that if they could study um, people at high altitude they may be able to find new treatments um, to help people who come in with very very serious traumas who are critically ill and also patients who have a number of range of conditions like um, emphysema, uh, like cystic fibrosis, um, and premature babies. Richard, thank you for sharing your experience on Everest with us. No, just finding any regrets? No, not at all. It was a fantastic experience, and it was great to be part of something uh, which hopefully will, will benefit a lot of people. Thank you, Richard. That was Richard Turner, who is a BBC journalist who joined Extreme Everest to try and find out how high altitude can also teach us how to care for people better in hospital. I've just had a quick email from one of our listeners pointing something out that I feel I actually should have maybe pointed out just earlier when Chris was mentioning about going freediving in between your scuba dives. And that is one of the things you're told not to do when you learn to scuba dive because it can increase your chances of getting uh, the bends or nitrogen uh, bubbles forming in your blood, in your system. So we actually don't recommend freediving in between your scuba dives and Chris might have been a bit lucky not to have uh, aggravated anything going on there. Um, so just so you know. But now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's question of the week. Hello there. Last week we were talking about dog toilet behaviour. After our latest broadcast, Eth Mount Fitchett in London got in touch to add that male dogs cock their legs to get the scent as high as possible so that it travels further on the air. Interesting yet aromatic point, Eth. If any of you have ever taken a ramble down a regularly watered dog walking trail, you may notice that particular perfume wafting on a light breeze. On this edition of Question of the Week, we'll be looking at tree helicopters. What is the physics behind the way sycamore seeds float like helicopters? So, how does this peculiar seed design work, and how does it benefit the sycamore tree? Our expert this week is Dr Graham Taylor, plants expert from the University of Oxford. On the tree itself, the sycamore fruit grows as a pair of wing seeds, but in fact those actually need to break apart into two before the seed can fly properly. Now the reason for this is that the seed itself acts as a weight at the base of the wing, and this means that the seed falls seed first. Now the result of that is that as the wing begins to spin, which happens as a result of asymmetries in the lift that are produced, that causes the tip of the wing to lift up. And as it lifts up, that means that the seed follows a sort of conical trajectory. And this is known as a coning angle. Much the same thing happens on a helicopter. And there again, the wing tip lifts up relative to the base of the rotor. 
And this actually provides the rotor with some degree of stability. And in the case of a sycamore seed, it keeps it stable as it falls. Now, the end result of all this is that the sycamore seed follows a sort of helical trajectory down to the ground. And that means that it actually takes much longer to reach the ground than would otherwise be the case. As the wind blows, it's able to carry the sycamore seed some distance along horizontally. Um, and that's really how the tree is able to disperse its seeds. Just when you thought private helicopters were only for the rich and famous, it turns out they do grow on trees after all. The main benefit for the sycamore tree is that, in a light breeze, its offspring can germinate away from the shade of its parent and in potentially better environments. For our next questions of the week, we have two poses for you to consider. Neil from Cambridge wants to know... Does an octopus have one motor cortex with eight divisions, one for each arm, or just one brain to control them all? And Carl from Australia asked... Hi, my name's Carl from Brisbane in Australia, and I really enjoy the programme, and here's my question. What would happen to human civilization if the Earth's magnetic poles flipped tomorrow? Thanks. Do you have a solution to either or even both of these puzzles? Get in touch by emailing question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. Until next time, that's all from Question of the Week. Back to the studio. Thanks, Diana. So if you think you know about octopi brains or, you, or the effect that pole reversal might have on us, then drop us a line at questionofthweek at thenakedscientist.com. Quick email from Steve, who's listening in Norfolk. He says, Chris, another reason for what looks like a wobbly TV picture whilst using electric toothbrushes is vibrations caused to your skull and eyes. Don't laugh, but I had an infrared vibrating massager device, say no more, which, when used on the neck whilst watching television, God, what is this guy on, made the picture appear to wobble. Nothing else in the room is affected because nothing else is scanned 25 times a second. Truth is strange. The hand fiction. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. It's the Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. Now, earlier in the programme, we asked you to have a go at our kitchen science. Rowena has had a go. She reckons she knows the answer. Hi, Rowena. Hello, Chris. What did you find? Um, there's enough surface tension to support the tissue paper and needle when yep. they're first put on. Yep. But if you then add a couple of drops of washing up liquid, it sinks. And I think it's because the surface tension in the water is broken. OK, um, let, well, let's, um, let's head back to Ben and Dave at Parkside. You stay on the line, Rowena, and we'll see if you're right. Hi, Ben. Hello again. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We've got a bowl of water. We've got a small piece of one-ply tissue paper, very thin, with a needle laid on top. And now Lucy is going to very carefully lower that piece of tissue paper, keeping it flat onto the surface of the water. Lucy, can you tell us what happens while you do it? OK, I'm just putting it down onto the water. And the water has gone onto the tissue and made it go all soggy, but the needle's floating on top. So the tissue has immediately soaked up the water and it's gone pretty much transparent, but the needle somehow, despite being a piece of metal, is floating on the surface of this water. At the moment it's just floating on top of the tissue paper, as you'd expect, but slowly, if you wait a couple of minutes, and maybe I'll just try and help it and just push that tissue paper down, you can actually make the tissue paper sink. So by just very carefully poking one corner of the tissue paper, it's starting to sink down into the water. Can you see what's happening, Lucy? Yeah, the uh, tissue's slowly sinking away from the needle, but the needle's staying on top of the water. Dave, that's fantastic. You've got a bit of metal floating in a bowl of water, and the metal usually sinks. What's going on? Well, yeah, if I just take another needle and just normally drop it into the water, what happens? It's just completely sunk to the bottom. Yeah, so something strange is happening when you lower it on very, very gently. This is all to do with something called surface tension. Water's made up of lots of really tiny lumps called molecules. And water molecules actually stick together particularly well. They're, they're attracted to each other really strongly, but not very strongly to air. 
So all the water molecules are trying to get as close to each other and trying not to be on the surface. So the water molecules are attracted to each other and they're not attracted to air, and so they kind of pull together where the water meets the air. Yeah, that's actually why water tends to form droplets, because the water is trying to get as small as possible, and the best shape for that is a sphere, which is roughly what a droplet is. Now, with a flat surface of water, then that, the water's not doing bad. It hasn't got too much surface of the air. But if you look at where the needle's touching the water, what's it done to the surface? It's made like a dent in it. So it's kind of dented in the surface of the water. Yeah, that's right. That's made extra surface, which the water doesn't like. So what the water's trying to do is trying to pull that flat by an effect we call surface tension. It's trying to pull it up flat, and that will pull hard enough to hold the needle out of the water. So a flat surface of water offers the least surface for water-air contact. And so when you put something slowly on the top, like this needle, then it distorts the top and the water tries to push it back to be flat. That's exactly right, yes. Now, something else we can do. What I've got here is some washing-up liquid, Lucy. Could you just put some on your finger and then touch the surface of the water just on the other side of the bowl? So Lucy's putting a, just really a tiny drop of washing-up liquid on the tip of her finger. Lucy, talk us through what happens. I'm just putting it onto the surface. And the needle has immediately dropped to the bottom of the bowl. Oh, wow. As soon as Lucy's finger with that washing up liquid on touched the surface of the water, the, the needle sank like a stone, exactly like you'd expect a piece of steel to do. So why is it so important that the surface tension is broken? Well, washing up liquid is actually designed to break down surface tension because water and fat don't mix very well because of the surface tension because water doesn't like mixing with fat. So if you're washing up a greasy dish and not using washing up liquid, it's going to be really difficult. But the washing up liquid lets the surface break up and so it'll get the grease off your bowl. Yes, so the water can dissolve the grease because it breaks down the surface tension. And also hot water has lower surface tension than cold water, which is why washing up in hot water works a lot better than cold water. So Lucy, do you do much washing up at home? I do a bit of washing up. I bet you try and avoid it, though. Uh, Sometimes. And have you ever noticed how it's really hard to wash up with water, but then much easier with the washing up liquid? Yeah, I had noticed, but I didn't realise that it was to do with surface tension. Well, now you know. So, Dave, other than being able to float a needle in a bowl of water, where do we see this surface tension stuff happening in, in the real world? There's a kind of insect called a pond skater, which is very small, very light, and it's got six legs and big, long feet. And it can actually stand on the surface tension and skate around on the surface of the water really quickly without being slowed down by actually having to travel inside the water. So it's a really good life strategy for it. Fantastic. Well, I hope you tried that out at home and I hope you now have a needle floating in a bowl of water. Don't forget you can break the surface tension with a little bit of washing up liquid and watch your needle sink. That's all for Kitchen Science this week. We'll be back to you next week. Thank you very much, Ben. And uh, if you can get a needle to float on the surface of water, uh, then you've done better than I did because mine sank. But uh, it should, in theory, be supported on the surface tension. As Rowena said, well done, Rowena. Thank you. Great to have you on The Naked Scientist. There are more great experiments like that on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. Alan is in Orpington. Hi, Alan. Yes. You wanted to ask a question. Yeah, um, it's, I've been to the optician and I've got floaters in my eye. And uh, so it gives the impression my eye is liquid. Um, so how would, in extreme temperatures, does, does that stop it being frozen? Well, well, actually, because your eyeball is contained within your head and your head's heated up to body temperature, it never actually freezes. So um, if you were dead, it would freeze. Um, but since you're alive and radiating heat, it, it, doesn't, it can't freeze. And you were saying as well, David, quite interestingly, you, when you cry at the Antarctic uh, or your eyes yeah. water, the tears don't freeze because well, they're salty. Yeah, because they're very salty and that lowers the freezing point of, of, of the liquid and so therefore your tears don't freeze either. Well, they freeze pretty quickly once they get onto your cheeks. Thanks, Alan. That's a good question. Yeah. I hope that answered it for you.
Yes, very good. Thank you. Okay, few emails just as we come up towards the end of the programme. Jen says, Hi Chris, in relation to getting the blood up to the brain in fighter pilots, I heard that giraffes are able to control their own blood pressure because their neck is so long. Is this true? Well, everyone can control their blood pressure, Jen, but what you're referring to is the fact that giraffes have a special adaptation in which they have a series of valves in their neck to control the intense pressure that would build up in their neck when they put their head down to drink. And so they have this special anatomical adaptation to make sure the blood pressure is controlled when they do that. Otherwise, they would have a massive surge of blood into their brain and have what Major Todd Dart was referring to as red out very nasty uh got an email from mitch blake he's listening in australia says hi i love the show uh i thought you guys might be able to answer this one i heard a trick which is that if you stare without blinking at a rainbow for five to ten seconds then it would disappear even if it's a photograph of a rainbow in the distance it seems to wobble a bit and then disappear until you blink again or shift your gaze any ideas i'll be listening on the podcast cheers mitch Yep, I think that what this is is an example of adaptation. Everything in the nervous system is uh, adaptable, which means when you smell something or feel something, get into a hot bath, you stop noticing the sensation or the stimulation after a while. Now, your eyes are exactly the same. When you stare at something for a long time, if you don't keep your eyes moving around tiny amounts on the visual scene to refresh the image, then the retina degrades the image and it becomes all blurry. And that's true of anything that you look at. And I think that's probably what's happening with this rainbow. Because rainbows are slightly less distinct, they have a sort of a wavery light, it's much more difficult for the eye to get a perfect fix on it, so they degrade probably a little bit more easily. Uh, right, one last email, which is from... James, he's in Derby. He says, um, referring to uh, the uh, G-forces you discussed earlier, I think prisoners should be put in the centrifuge. Rapists should get 7G, burglars 5G. Frighten the living daylights out of them. James from Derby. Well, thanks for that, James. Um, I understand that Gordon Brown is looking uh, for a new executioner general, so perhaps you could apply for that job. Right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, it's our Q&A show, so we'd love some questions from you. Can you send them to chris at nakedscientist.com? And if you'd like to send us some feedback or just say hi, then we'd love to hear from you on the same address, chris at nakedscientist.com. Thank you very much to Mark Harris, Richard Turner, David Thomas, and Major Todd Dart, plus our wonderful production crew here, which is Ben, Petro, and Dave. Also worth a listen this week, of course, is the Nature Podcast. We make that too. It's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And if you fancy chatting, blogging, or just reading about science, then do drop by our forum. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Now, lastly, we really could use a few more reviews at, on uh, iTunes, uh, especially in the UK. Come on, UK guys. Come on, everyone in the UK and also in the US. So if you can spare a few minutes to drop in on iTunes and give us your feedback and your thoughts on our show, we'd be really grateful. Have a great week. See you next time. Music